The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning, everyone. If you have not noticed, I'm sure that you will agree that the world that we live in, the church of which we are members, has a complicated and generally negative relationship with guilt. We all understand that some people are guilty of things. You can be guilty of a crime or, or wrongdoing. But the emotion, the feeling of guilt, to feel guilty is anathema to our sensibilities, even in the church. And that's to say nothing of an even dirtier word, shame. To be ashamed of something is simply not done. Brothers and sisters, I'm here today to tell you that based on the example and the teaching that we find in the word of our God, conviction, guilt, and even shame are good. Let me read for you Psalm 38. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. My God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. But what is this? What is this state of mind that is induced in us in this psalm? Is this, is this the prayer of some sort of unbeliever? Is this the prayer of a man who has not yet confessed his sin to God and not yet been brought into the family, the kingdom of heaven? Does this man need Jesus? King David is the author. Well, perhaps this is when King David has committed adultery with Bathsheba and committed murder against Uriah. No. In Psalm 51, this psalm, if you read the title card, is to be sung 
at the memorial offering, the Sabbath offering, a weekly occurrence. This is ordinary. David believes that this is always his state. He believes this is always true of himself. This psalm is no different than the weekly prayer of confession that we pray together when we gather here. But how can this be then? How can David, a man after God's own heart, a regenerate man, a hero of the faith, suffer weekly guilt so deep that his bones hurt? Are we not free from guilt and shame? Have we not been saved from our sins? And is God not faithful and just to forgive? We know these things to be true, and yet your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. I fear that this psalm and the emotions that it ought to stir is so foreign to us because we fail to understand in our hearts and in our affections so many key truths about God and ourselves and salvation that we would profess to be true. Our culture and our parents and our books and our churches and our own proud hearts do their very best to obscure such precious truths about who God is and what it means to fear Him. Who we are and what it means when we sin. The sweet grace of being disciplined by God the Father and the true repentance that can only come from knowledge of these things. May I ask when is the last time you read for yourself or heard read, even in our church, the book of Lamentations in the Bible? Did you even remember that there is an entire work of Scripture dedicated to nothing but woe and sadness and trembling before an angry God. It seems that our unease with guilt and lament and our desire to lightly dust our sins away is not the example nor the expectation of God's word. A right attitude towards sin and repentance and salvation can only begin with the righteous fear of God. Who is then this God that we serve, and why ought we fear him? Proverbs 1.7 teaches us that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. And so then let us begin. In our psalm today we read, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Why would anyone ever want to induce themselves to think about God's wrath? Why would I, standing before you, desire to burden your conscience with the idea that there is a God out there who is absolutely powerful and angry with you? But that's not even the end. Not only is God so powerful, not only is God capable of great wrath over you, but he lays out in no uncertain terms exactly the cause of this anger. In his law, God teaches us to fear him. His law teaches us who he is and what he considers to be good. And when seen with clear eyes, every one of us 
should feel a little twinge of discomfort when we come across the many, many psalms that say, oh, how I love God's law. I say that I love God's law, but when I read it with my heart open to it, it kills me a little every time. I feel a lot less like I love God's law and a lot more like when the author of Hebrews speaks of a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that even Moses said, I tremble with fear. A true understanding of God and who he is and his greatness and his law and what it exacts of us ought induce fear. But are we not the people who preach grace and mercy? Do we not invite all of you to draw near to God? Even when we take the Lord's Supper, we invite you, come to the Lord's table and eat as we anticipate meeting God face to face. And we, in our Reformed tradition, we are the people of grace. But why do we think that because grace and mercy and forgiveness are all true, that Christians become exempt from the fear of God? Are we better than the author of Proverbs? Have we arrived at complete knowledge and no longer need the fear of God to begin our journey? Have we been made equal to God that he is no longer over us? Have we been made righteous that we need no longer fear sin? Remember what Paul writes in Romans as he is recounting all of the grave wickedness of men. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Of whom is Paul writing? He summarizes this wicked man by saying, There is no fear of God before their eyes. The man who has no fear of God is the very definition of the unrighteous. If you are a Christian, then I'm sure you wish to be righteous. Fear God. And if I may twist the knife a little more, I don't think it's right to talk about the fear of God without also talking about sin. So after all, were we sinless, what would we have to fear? We would stand before the Lord and he would say, well done, you did it, welcome in. None of his wrath would be directed towards us. We would have nothing to hide. And yet, today we read, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities have gone over my head and like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. David writes, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. My sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. 
I am feeble and crushed, and I groan because of the tumult of my heart. These are the words of a man who bears witness to his own sin with a fear of God in his heart. Recall again, this is not a psalm, not a prayer written after some grave sin, after some dire falling away. This is every day the condition of David's heart. He sees with clear eyes how much his sin ought to induce a fear of God in him. The very man who sings songs, oh, how he loves the law. Why does he love it? Because it lets him see the truth about him and about God, the ugly truth. I know we all sin. We all sin. We're mean to our loved ones when we argue. We're selfish with our time and our things. But those things in my mind, I think, are comparatively easy to repent of. For we can apologize to those whom we've wronged and work on it for next time. We can make a joke about it even. Husbands and wives, men and women, there's an endless number of, you know what I'm talking about, that lets us dust the sin away as if it were light. But let us not commit then the grave error of stopping at the surface level of our sin. I understand why you would want to. Because by looking at the outside and sticking to issues that everyone can wink at, we don't have to deal with any of those ugly emotions like guilt and shame. But you and I both know our own hearts, and we both know that that is neither where your sin starts nor ends. For what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The words of Christ. I know what's in my heart, and you know what's in your heart. And I'm pretty sure that I know what's in your heart, too, because I think it's a lot like mine. How many times a day do you slander a person with evil thoughts? Foolishness? A sin? Yes. Envy and covetousness? Are humans even capable of using social media without these sins, without envy? Sexual immorality? We all know what Jesus taught us. A look. How many times have you mocked God in your heart, sitting under his word but paying it no mind? And where do your thoughts wander when you claim to be praying? Do you feel it yet in your bones? Am I being too harsh? Too many rules, all law, no grace? We can't be saved by works anyway. Our Christian's not free. No. You must be brought low by God and God's law before you can understand repentance or grace or freedom. But there is hope. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? The author of Hebrews here quotes from the Old Testament four passages. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord 
disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and Psalms again. And continuing in Hebrews, this is chapter 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I understand many of you have not had earthly fathers who exemplify God. But fortunately, God is not like a father insofar as he is like our earthly fathers, but it's the other way around. Our earthly fathers are good fathers only insofar as they are like the father. God teaches us right from wrong. God disciplines us in wisdom and understanding. He sometimes punishes us for our good. No matter how terrible of a father you had, when you were born, he knew more about right and wrong than you did, at least taught you something. What kind of horrific abdication of a father's duty would it be to teach his son nothing? To have knowledge, but keep it away. God is not like this father. God has righteousness. God has wisdom. God has forgiveness, and he disciplines you that you might be able to receive it. Imagine a God who was fearful, but not fatherly. Imagine arriving to the throne of judgment and presenting your life only for God to say, that wasn't even what I wanted. This one goes to hell. God disciplines you painfully because he loves you. His discipline, his punishment keeps you. For you must know your shortcomings. You need to come to grips with your depravity. You have to be aware of your foolishness. Like a child must be taught these things. The discipline hurts. The guilt and the shame and the punishment, the pain and even the fear. For who among us can say that he never restrained himself from evil out of fear of punishment? God's discipline is a gift that keeps us from greater unrighteousness. And let me interlude here to say something particular about our body that is not necessarily true of all Christians. We are a congregationalist church, which means that you, brothers and sisters, are the final defense of our membership and doctrine. And you have entrusted much of the work in shepherding to us, your pastors, as scripture demonstrates and commands. You trust us and respond to our authority in kind. But nonetheless, you are the church. So listen well. If we ever fail to preach the word in a way that does not demand repentance. Fire me. I mean it. Can you imagine? There's no need to imagine. It's so common. A shepherd who cares so little for the souls of his sheep that he isn't willing to show them the truth about the fear of God. Can you imagine preaching grace, grace, grace all day long and never once actually stopping to say, you know, you need grace for a reason. 
This shepherd might, over months and years, never actually once preach to your heart, to preach in a way that makes you think that you need grace. Perhaps he preaches about other people's sins and how much better we are than them. Subtly, sure, but it's there. Maybe he preaches in a way that makes you think that you used to need grace back when you were not a Christian, but now, oh, now you've been saved and you don't need grace anymore. You have it already. Never wanting to embarrass you, never wanting to stir you up, he might preach through every book of the Bible and every verse of the Bible with all the best commentaries and all the best John Calvin quotes and always making sure that you never once feel the weight of God. Imagine to care so little for your souls as to obscure their true state from you. I know that this is true of Bobby and John too when I am preparing to preach to you. This is how I know what must be said. I read and I study and I see a good point. I think of a snappy cultural observation and I find a line that I know would score me an easy point with you. But then I get to a part that stops my heart. The part that makes me think, no, that's, that's too much. That's too close to home. That hurts me. This will require me to change. And that's how I know. That's how I know what must be preached. So if you ever catch me not saying that part, it is your obligation to tell me. Do not let me preach the word in a way to dull or hide God's law, to tickle your ears. We must preach and study and learn the fear of God so that with clear eyes you might understand your need for grace and only thereby repent and believe truly. I don't want your conscience to be dulled and atrophied by constant optimism and consolation. I do not want your awareness of sin to become lighter, nor does God. I want it to become heavier so that you understand what God offers to you. Anyone who tells you you don't have to feel guilty is a liar. Do not forsake me, O Lord, David continues. My God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Without coming to grips with the reality of the fear of God and the seriousness of our sin, this desperate cry, this throwing ourselves at the throne of God and begging for him, only him to save us, makes no sense. It's only when we arrive at the reality of our sin that we are drawn to the correct place at the foot of the cross. Look at what scripture shows us of true repentance. From Joel 2, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. 2 Corinthians 7, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Job says, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And Jesus teaching in Luke 5 says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What repentance is there then? What turning away from your sin, what weeping, what rending of your heart can there be without the fear of God? It is only after 
He plunges into the depths of his guilt that the psalmist finally is able to come to God and cry out. He knows now how desperate his need. He knows that the only chance for absolution is to cast himself upon the mercy of God, knowing that it is undeserved. Do not forsake me, O Lord. Make haste to help me, my salvation. We too often think ourselves not in need of repentance. Repentance is what you do when you become a Christian. You used to be a sinner, and then you repent of it, and you try not to think of it anymore because you don't want to deal with the conviction and the guilt and the shame that comes from the knowledge of your sin. But why? Why do we as Christians try to dodge our conviction? Why would we diminish our guilt? Do we think that God will be fooled? The only ones who can be fooled are ourselves. We have no need to hide our sin from God, for not only does he know it, he offers to take it away. So no, repentance is not easy. It is not comfortable. True repentance is marked, as the psalmist exemplifies, by a fear of God, a contempt for our sin, and a recognition that it hurts. A declaration before God and man that I, I, a sinner, hate my sin, and am desperate for pity that I do not receive. Not a transaction in which I am owed, but begging. I am ready to fall. My pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. It hurts, but it is the only path to life. My mind was drawn while preparing this to a scene from the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, the books. I have not seen the movie. But a story from Narnia. A boy, Eustace, is sailing with a group of his friends on a journey from island to island, and he, through his sin, through his foolishness, and as a consequence of his actions, is turned into a vile dragon. Not only can he not communicate with his friends, nor find enough to eat, but the ship cannot hold him. He is going to be left behind, trapped forever as a beast. And after begging and crying and desperately attempting to escape this curse that's been laid upon him, he finally despairs of his sin. He accepts the consequences of his choices and gives himself over to the punishment that he has brought upon himself. But then Aslan, the great lion, appears. He says to Eustace, you can be free of your scales. Undress yourself. Rid yourself of the evil. And so the dragon takes his great claws and he scratches his scales off. And they shed freely, only to reveal another layer. Again and again, ripping at his skin, he despairs, he laments his sinfulness and begs the lion, I can't do it. And so Aslan says, then you will have to let me do it. And so then Eustace, relaying the story later to his friends, he says, quote, I was afraid of his claws, but I was desperate, so I lay down and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. And the only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of having the scales peel off. The guilt and the pain and the shame and the conviction of our sin are part of our salvation. It is only once we are so disgusted with our sinfulness that we cry out to God, anything to take it away, God. 
But when we cry that out, we don't understand what we ask for. We cannot reckon the cost for our forgiveness. We don't understand who God is and how distant he is from us. We never will. But that cost is not collected from you. For Jesus paid it all. He suffered that we might receive mercy. And our lament brings us to the foot of the cross where the blood of Jesus flows down and washes us clean. You hear us read from 1 John 1 all the time after our corporate confession of sin. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So much of the time that I've spent so far this morning is what I would consider remediation, pushing back against what I know to be true of myself and what I hear from the circles that I run in and what I believe is true of you too. The penitent psalms of which there are many, are so foreign to our ears, the very idea of being so broken by sin, a man of God even, so broken by sin, is simply not done today. And so then do we not need them all the more? So even without teaching this psalm per se, I hope that now the words of this song strike you at least. I hope that the sincerity and the urgency and the emotion grip you. Because I hope that you have come to embrace such an experience as a grace in and of itself, not to be avoided or hidden away or run from, but to be received as the loving discipline of the Father. So let me then leave you with a few summarizing questions and thoughts from the psalm itself. First, I hope that I have shown, I hope that you agree, and I hope that at least partially you feel like you agree, that guilt for sin is good. We all desire naturally as Christians to make it past the stage where we are sinners. We want to put our feet up as if we've arrived, but you and I know the condition of our hearts. I know my guilt every moment of every day. And so ask yourself then these questions based on your theology of guilt. For we all have one, whether or not it is biblically informed. Do you understand who God is? Does your understanding of guilt magnify his holiness or diminish it to be more like you? Do you make him great or do you try to make him only a little better than you? Do you understand what sin is? Do you see your sin for what it truly means and affront your perfect father, rightly deserving of punishment, rightly deserving of guilt? Or do you reduce your sins to mere weaknesses, mistakes, speed bumps on the way to glory? When you repent, do you ask God to take away your sin or your guilt for sin? Brothers and sisters, do you fear God? If you are not a believer today, understand God will judge you in comparison to himself. 
You were made to bear his image. Do you? And are you prepared to answer that to him? And you, Christian, have you tamed God? Have you mistaken his grace and his kindness for an unwillingness to follow through on his holiness? Do you ever only consider his anger kindled against them and not you? So do you believe then that guilt for sin is from God, that it is good and right, and that it is loving discipline that ought to drive you to repentance? It is. Secondly, your sin, even you, Christian, has real, tangible consequences in your life that include payback, suffering, conviction, and discipline. Sin causes guilt and shame and emotional pain as it ought. See how much the very word of God is full of tears, weeping for sin, the sin of man, the sin of Israel, my sin, your sin. The pages of our book are tear-soaked, and that ought to be obvious with anyone with eyes to see it. Sin hurts. And David says, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. Even my nearest kin stand far off. Well, your sin does not just hurt you. It hurts those whom you love. We all see how we harm our spouses and our children and our friends and our neighbors. You might run from your guilt. They can't. And your sin beyond that even mocks God before the watching world. My foes are vigorous. They are mighty. Many are those who hate me wrongfully, those who render me evil for good and accuse me because I follow after good. Do you want to give our enemies more reason to hate us? You know what they say about you, that you're hateful, that you're backwards, you're abusive, oppressive, delusional, and naive. And now they get to watch while you trip all over the words you claim to believe, while you mock the God you say they ought to follow. So yes, sin has real, painful, and lasting consequences. And one of them is guilt. And yet, third, you, Christian, only you, Christian, of all people, can look this reality in the eye. You can have a fear of God. You can be honest about your sin. You can feel the weight of your evil. But only you, Christian, can see it and not be slain by it. For we do not need to diminish God. You don't need to make God nice or safe or easygoing. God is not a tolerant model citizen. He isn't. But you, you, Christian, you don't need him to be that. You can see God in his holiness with all of his righteousness and all of his anger. You can fear him and yet live. You do not need to diminish your sin before God. For what do you stand to gain? He knows. He knows the evil in your heart and your mind. He knows the words on your lips out loud and under your breath and even those that you bite your tongue and keep within. He knows all the wickedness that you entertain. And he knows how you hurt those in your care. We do not need to hide our sin from God because by doing so, we are only denying ourselves the good gifts of understanding of him and the godly discipline that drives us to repentance. Because God disciplines those whom he loves, and discipline hurts, and discipline produces righteousness. Take joy in God's discipline. 
It is a sign of your adoption. God does not discipline those who are not his children. He destroys them. They do not fear him, but they should. They hide their sin because it will kill them. They suppress their guilt because there is no way out. And in the end, they perish. But you, child of God, are blessed to groan under the rod and thereby escape the sword. Your guilt, though no less deserved, is washed away in bloody grace. And it is because we know this that we can then be honest and let the guilt come. We sin over and over and over again. Our names are written in the book of life, but our bodies, our flesh is filled with burning. But do not despair. Do not run from the knowledge of your sin. Do not hide from the conviction and the guilt that God brings you. Let it drive you into the arms of the Father. Let the pain of your wickedness drive you into the arms of the Father. So for all these reasons, do not fear guilt or shame or conviction. Do not hesitate to lament over your sin. Your heart wants you to fear every manner of thing under the sun except God. But this psalm shows us a better way, a way to be more free. Is David not speaking as a man who knows he is free? He has nothing to hide. He openly cries out to God, fully aware of his own sin, and yet secure, knowing that the Lord is not far off. So let the fear of God wash over you. Let the record of your sins pour out of your heart. Confess your sins to the Lord and let him set you free. When anyone, Christian or not, believes himself to be above or beyond or hiding from guilt, you are out of your mind. But the law and the discipline of God is a gift to you to restore you to sanity, that you might once again understand your need for the grace and the blood of Jesus. It is a gift to you so that perhaps in the cold light of day you might glimpse God and fear him for who he truly is, that you might see your sin for what it truly is, that you might repent and be saved. Your guilt is a gift that might discipline you that you will not die. Do not forsake me, O Lord. My God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Cast yourselves on the grace of God. Do not flee the guilt. Let it drive you to God. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your discipline, though it hurts. Like children, we do not appreciate or understand your discipline when we are in it. But we trust that it is the only way to make us understand our need for repentance. And so thank you for the gift that drives us to you. God, we here who are Christians do not fear your reproof. We embrace it. Let us see our sin. Let us see the pain of our sin. Let us feel the guilt of our sin. And let us never forget that it is paid for. For all those who believe, washed clean by the death 
of Jesus and secured as your sons by his resurrection. Father, we are brought low that you might lift us up. Please do not withhold from us the lowest lows so that we might understand the true heights of your glory. Amen. Rock of ages. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. From thy wounded side which flow Be of sin the double cure Save from wrath and make me pure Thou must say